This program is brought to you by PersonalLifeMedia.com. I am Michael Beckwith, and it's been my joy to be a part of Living Dialogues with my brother Duncan. Beautiful, and I appreciate the format, and I appreciate your consciousness. I found it to be not only inspiring, but a continual regeneration of the soul. It is what's happening now. From time immemorial, beginning with indigenous councils and ancient wisdom traditions, through the work of Western visionaries such as Plato, Galileo, and quantum physicist David Bohm, mutually participatory dialogue has been seen as the key to evolving and transforming consciousness, evoking a flow of meaning, a dia flow of logos meaning, beyond what any one individual can bring through alone. So join us now as together with you, the active deep listener, we evoke and engage in living dialogues. Welcome to Living Dialogues. I'm your host, Duncan Campbell, and I'm truly delighted to have as my guest for this particular dialogue, Michael Bernard Beckwith, a powerful force for change. He combines spiritual, educational, scientific, governmental, economic, and social elements in what he shares. He teaches meditation and scientific prayer. He conducts retreats and speaks at conferences and seminars around the world. He is also the originator of the life visioning process and the author of Inspirations of the Heart, 40-Day Mind Fast Soul Feast, A Manifesto of Peace, and most recently, Spiritual Liberation, Fulfilling Your Soul's Potential. So, Michael, what a deep pleasure it is to have you on Living Dialogues. Duncan, it's my joy to be with you, to weigh in on the issues of the day and to just uh, speak from the heart with you. Beautiful, because that's actually what we do here on Living Dialogues, is speak from the heart, we weigh in on issues of the day, and we also talk about our deep consciousness and the importance of dialogue, both inner and outer. On my website, I have a quotation from Margaret Mead saying that for spirituality to evolve, for consciousness to evolve in the human species, the conversation must deepen. And, Absolutely. And uh, here we have the key to it, which is uh, deepening through the heart. And one of the things I'd like to begin this with is from your own introduction, where you say that the book you hold in your hands, Spiritual Liberation, is the name of the book, is not just another self-help book telling you how to get more of what you think you need to be happy and anti-bored until you die. Its purpose is to stir you up to ignite within you a desire to establish a transformative spiritual practice and how to cultivate and sustain that spiritual practice. The strategies described in this book will shift your dependence on the outer things of life to make you happy, to rely on your own inner authority as a fully empowered being. And elsewhere in the book, as you begin your first chapter on love and beauty, you say, my central message is not about religiosity or churchianity. It is about aspiring toward spiritual liberation, which I define as becoming free from the narrow confines of fear, doubt, worry, and lack, and living instead from a conscious awareness of one's capital A, authentic, capital S, self, one's true nature of wholeness. 
end of quote. And with that background, Michael, I'd like to invite you to tell us how you came to hear the call, not only for your vocation, but how your own, as you describe it, awakening to this new paradigmatic stage of consciousness, this new evolutionary impulse that we all have access to, uh, actually came to awaken itself in you. Uh, thank you, Duncan. Uh, it was quite interesting listening to my own words. <laughs> uh, I'm sure, yeah. From, from the book, very, very interesting. Uh, well, I, I've been on this uh, path consciously over 30 years now, and uh, uh, 30-something years ago, um, I had a series of inner experiences that um, shattered the paradigm in which I was living, and I could never, ever get back in that proverbial egg ever again. Uh, I... I was awakened with a, uh, in a lucid dream and uh, stabbed in the heart in this particular dream and died. It was very painful. And when I, when I woke up, I could see that we were surrounded by this luminous uh, presence that was everywhere, that animate and inanimate objects uh, glow with it, and that the love of this presence uh, is central to everything struck me to my core, and radically shifted my perception. And from that moment on, I went on a R&D search, a research and development, trying to discover what had happened to me. And along the way, studied um, Eastern and Western mysticism, meditation, um, and basically discovered uh, what had happened to me and what continues to happen in terms of this uh, evolutionary impulse that, that governs the universe is forever seeking to express itself by means of me and by means of all of us. And so the fire that uh, occurred within my soul when that particular event in consciousness took place, it continues to burn brightly, as bright as it did ever, and I continue to wake up with that uh, desire of greater discovery of that which is not only within me, but which is within everyone, and to give it vent, to express itself. I'm, I'm, I'm keenly aware that everyone uh, is here for this exact purpose, to get in touch with this impulse that we can call it God, we can call it the love intelligence that governs the universe, we can call it life that's conscious of itself. But regardless of the names that we call it, it's relentless, and it wants to become conscious of itself as us. And it kind of it governs my life. It's what I live for. It uh, creates for me an extremely joyful existence, and an existence that uh, is full of service, which is also um, adds to the joy of being. And um, I sometimes uh, pinch myself at the um, just the extraordinary uh, state of happiness and. Uh, sense of well-being that I live in, even under the pressure and the intensity of the ministries and the programs and the projects that I'm involved with that carry tremendous deadlines and tremendous responsibilities, within that there's always this overriding and underlying sense of connection being taken care of and a deep feeling tonality that all is well, even with all of the the issues of the day that he, the human species is facing, and then in, in, on an individual level, level the, the intensity of um, what we're going through. 
And I think that's very beautifully put because one of the things that is most, I think, riveting about your recent DVD of a day in the life of yourself and your wife, Ricky Byers Beckwith, November 30, 1986 was the original time when you had created the Agape Spiritual Center. And this day in the life was November 30 of 2008, 22 years later to the day after you had founded that. And I think 21 years later to the day, as I recall, when you and Ricky got together. Is that right? Together in terms of meeting. Yes. Uh, We didn't get together until a few years later. Mm -hmm. But yeah, that's when she came into the community. I I became her teacher, Mm -hmm. her counselor, Mm-hmm. and ultimately uh, her songwriting partner, mm-hmm. and then friend, and then the rest became history. <laughs> <laughs> and a joyful history, and I think that's one of the things that's really infectious about the sharing that the two of you do in the course of that one day that occurred. It's that sense of joy where you describe in that particular sharing that you did in the DVD that at the beginning when you felt the call, your vocation to actually share this enlightenment experience, we might call it, or an awakening, not trying to make it super special, but just that sense of connectedness to the all-pervasive sense of divinity that you were deeply moved and awakened and touched and connected with in your experience, that you had a resistance to following your calling of sharing that in the formation of a formal Agape spiritual center where you created what you now call the beloved community around the people gathering every Sunday and using that opportunity to amplify and enrich and reconnect their own experience with each other, not mediated by your ministership, but actually uh, simply uh, you acting as a catalyst for that kind of mutual awakening that can take place when we all gather together with that kind of openness and vulnerability and willingness to share and respect and see each other deeply. And before you actually took on that formal role, you said you were in some measure of resistance because you enjoyed your life. You were teaching, you had seminars and workshops you did, and as you put it, I had my weekends free. And I was thinking that this is a pretty good life, you know. And and then at one point, uh, that call, uh, the vocation, insisted itself into you with a lucid dream where you were essentially, in a sense, instructed by an inner voice that this is what you were meant to do, really in the tradition of your great-grandfather, who was the minister of a very well-known church in Washington, D.C. And you said, I finally said yes unconditionally. I surrendered, I yielded to this impulse, and I did so without negotiation or bargaining. And to my great uh, surprise, I was infused with an energy so that the saying of that yes gave me more energy, more joy, more delight, and my unconscious resistance based on the fear that I might be overwhelmed by responsibility or have to, quote, give up part of my cherished private life turned out to be quite the opposite. Absolutely. I think that, you know, it's, it's, it's not an uncommon thing when an individual finds their, their deep willingness and their sacred yes that all of the issues that the ego would, would bring forward or the surface mind would, would, would say in terms of what we might lose along the way, uh, it's not an uncommon um, story. When someone finally says yes, they discover that all of those issues were uh, just a projection of the ego's fear and that we don't lose anything that's substantial. We lose nothing of real value. 
but we gain so much richness for saying yes. There's a, an enthusiasm, there's a release of talents and capacities and gifts that were latent unless they were expressed, and then we were able to live more and more and more uh, higher states of bliss, because as I teach, bliss is basically the function of the activation of our potential. And so as, as that yes factor is there and, there, and as the resistance is, is lessened, we have higher and higher states of bliss, even in the midst of chaos, even in the midst of birth, even in the midst of very uh, intense situations. Uh, that, that, that joy of being alive takes mm-hmm. us over. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, at this point, uh, 22 years later, um, I mean, and it feels like overnight. It doesn't feel like 22 years. It feels like almost no time. It's just been a moment-by-moment a surrender, a moment-by-moment a releasing of life energy, a moment-by-moment participating in, in activation for the community, and making a lot of friends along the way, and watching lives heal and uh, regenerate and rejuvenate and people finding their purpose. And it's been um, just a sweet, sweet journey. Oh, I love how you describe it as a sweet, sweet journey, because that really is, I think, the hallmark of uh, real liberation is that there's a gentleness to it. It's not about a um, excitement or intensity of uh, feeling powerful or as that phrase had it in the movie Titanic, you know, I'm the king of the world. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's much more 10 years later when Slumdog Millionaire won the Oscar. We had Danny Boyle surrounded by all of the cast members of all the different generations and people that had been part of the production. There was this great celebration in a sense of the human international family uh, as opposed to this cry that had been made by the director of Titanic uh, when he won the award saying, I feel like the king of the universe. There's a, a maturation, a going beyond that adolescent sense of having peer approval or fame or recognition. As your wife, Ricky Byers, put it, when she first started out expressing her musical gift, uh, which is very considerable, as those who have witnessed it uh, can attest, she was trying to, as she put it, make her mark to, in a sense, advance her felt identity through her music. But as she got deeper and deeper into her gift, she said, I realize that I now express myself through my music for the joy of the experience, and I no longer regard a beautiful piece that may come through me as my personal achievement, but simply uh, that I'm a vehicle in service to the larger celebration. Absolutely. And that is um, a wonderful hallmark of spiritual maturity when you no longer uh, see what comes forward as a personal accomplishment, but is definitely a gift from the presence that uh, doesn't really belong to us. It's a gift from the universe that we have the uh, opportunity and the privilege to express. And she did it so well in, in the movie Spiritual Liberation. And that's, that's kind of how we feel. We just, we just feel that we have a, a wonderful opportunity to express our unique gifts. They're amplified when they come together, and lives change. We make friends along the way, and at the same time, we don't own it. It's not ours. It actually belongs to the community. The gifts belong to the community. It is our responsibility to be stewards of our gifts, 
to uh, cultivate them, to set them free, but they belong to the community. And then we get the benefit of the bliss that comes from their activation through us. And, you know, oftentimes um, this, this universal presence, it does all the work, and we get a lot of credit for it, you see. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> mm-hmm. But it's actually uh, a releasing of the gift, much like uh, the flower, you know, releasing its natural fragrance as it comes into full bloom, that fragrance you know, blesses the community as the, the flower comes into its uh, full potential. And it gets the privilege of being in its full potential, and it blesses the community with its beauty and with its fragrance, being a smile of God. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful way of living. And I always try to remind people that, you know, there aren't any special people. They're just people who have said yes at a very deep level, people who've said who've become willing to cultivate their gifts and to share them and, and then to live full out without an attachment to an outcome, you know, uh, not trying to restrict or constrict the flow of life, but really seeking to give of themselves to the best of their ability. And then the out form, the outcome forms around that, that sharing and around that intentionality and that gifting process. It's a very powerful way to live. A very powerful way to live, and it's one we might describe in athletic terms that people are familiar with as being in the zone. It's li- living in the zone. Michael Jordan used to talk about the zone, but in a very powerful way, on your DVD, you share a story about Bill Russell, one of the six NBA players to have been responsible, incredibly, for winning 49% of the most valuable player awards in the last 50 years. So he was an extraordinary player for the Boston Celtics and a very dignified uh, and um, a person full of humor and good cheer when you see him uh, occasionally uh, on television now today uh, as an elder, we might say, in the sport. And what he shared with you was that uh, at their times when he was playing, at the peak of his performance where he said, I could step onto the court and I would just feel, before the game even began, a certain kind of flow of energy. And I had this deep sense of appreciation that I was being allowed to participate in that flow of energy. And I had no sense of attachment to the outcome. Uh, I played with uh, vigor and intensity, but I was not attached to the outcome. I was not playing from a sense of competitive tenseness and trying to be the victor. And sometimes I could even see in the eyes of someone on the other team that they also were sharing that sense of participation, joyful participation in the game itself. And it really kind of brought back, we might say, that Olympic ideal of amateur, that people would play or exercise their gift in athletics for the love of the expression, as you put it, of of the evolutionary impulse through us and feel privileged to have a body and a mind and a spirit that could dance or play or shoot or ski in that particular way. Absolutely. Uh, Bill Russell was a prime example of that. And also uh, another gentleman that attends Agape when he's on this coast, Ernie Banks. Mm-hmm. Who, with the Chicago Cubs, mm-hmm. I had a conversation with him, and he was sharing that he would sometimes be in the field, and he would walk onto the field, similar to the Bill Russell story that he said in his autobiography, uh, he'd walk onto the field he knew would be a special day, mm-hmm. and uh, he would know where the ball was going to be hit before the mm-hmm. pitcher pitched the ball, mm-hmm. and he would already start inching 
toward that particular area of the field. He was so in tune with with the life force that was going on. And of course, you know, he was great shortstop, a uh, Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. And uh, but he was just in tune with this ineffable energy that's all around us. And uh, it is the zone, whether it happens in athletics or art or, or music, poetry. Uh, individuals can, uh, if they're earnest and sincere about their practice and about cultivating this way of life, they'll find themselves in the zone in sometimes the most, what appears to be the most menial acts. You see? <laughs> I uh, do, yes. You know, a, 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 a consider a Brother Lawrence, who had that same kind of awareness washing the dishes, you see. And that and was so, uh, centuries ago. Centuries ago, you know. So uh, individuals sometimes will delay their good because they're looking for some kind of monumental thing to be a part of. Uh, and rather than understanding that they can bring a monumental awareness to the smallest of act. And then that act becomes monumental because of the consciousness that they bring to it, you see. Rather than rushing into the future, uh, trying to do something big in the future, without an attachment to the outcome, we bring our whole being and what's in front of us. And then that, uh, the universe takes that, what you might think is a little thing, and creates something very big out of it. And in fact, that's really uh, how we have experienced uh, ourselves here on Living Dialogues for the number of years we've been doing it here for the last 15 and more years, where there is really this sense of opening oneself in relaxation without agenda into, as you put it, the here and nowness, here and nowism. You know, ironically, because all isms we know are wasms, but uh, you, <laughs> you say it in a very lighthearted way, the here and nowism, to be in the moment and just trust your instinct as to what's going to come out, that sense of trusting one's own ability to just be present with oneself and with other people. And I'm going to come back just for a moment to the sports analogy because it's so powerful in the sense that in America particularly, and not only here in America, but around the world, sometimes when people get involved in competitive athletics, they lose that sense of connectedness and open-heartedness, and they tense up with this, we might say, mental framing that they must win and they must really perform well at their position if they're a professional athlete or perhaps lose their livelihood and so on. And nowhere perhaps is that as intense or certainly it's as intense as anywhere else as in professional football in the United States. And Michael Murphy, the founder of Esalen, told me a wonderful story on Living Dialogues years ago when he was my guest of how he had been investigating this sense of the zone Uh, of just being in the present moment and how that could occur sometimes in the most unlikely of circumstances. And he was investigating the body-mind connection, talking with someone from a professional football team at the training table who revealed to him in the intimacy of their casual conversation, just as Ernie Banks revealed to you, that there were moments on a Sunday when he, as a defensive lineman, could see, literally, where the play was going to go before the quarterback had even received the ball and he would move to that place in the backfield and sure enough the back would run right into him and he would tackle him and uh, (laughs) Michael was very intrigued with that and so the next day he came back and asked if they could sit down and have a little chat and he started to ask him a question about it 
And the player got very embarrassed and said, I don't remember saying anything like that. No, I don't know what you're talking about. And, and moved away. In other words, the, the sense of shame and embarrassment that's deep within our competitive culture that we could even acknowledge something that's sort of beyond the framing of mental, strategic, competitive. Right. The con- planning mind. Exactly. And, and so it was very interesting. And the last little story I'll tell, which is very amusing, he got a letter one time after he wrote the book Golf and the Kingdom about how you could relax into that moment playing golf. And it was a little kind of spiritual teaching in the form of Seamus Irons, an invented character who was playing in the dark on a golf course in Scotland and so on. And uh, he got an email from a woman who was a member of a golf club who said, I was on the course and uh, I just all of a sudden was filled with the sense that the green was God's petticoat. And, and another man said to him, you know, I hit the ball over the hill and then I had a kind of a second sight, which we might call among ourselves a shamanic second sight, uh, where he saw that the ball had gotten maybe three feet from the cup. But physically, it was impossible to see through the hill. And when he got to the top of the hill, sure enough, the ball was exactly where he had seen it. And so Michael concluded that, quote, golf is a kind of mystery school for Republicans. <laughs> That's beautiful. <laughs> Which I thought was great. It reminds me when I, I remember when I was a little boy. I, I, I imagine I think I was about five years old, mm-hmm. and I was I, I was in the backyard watering the lawn. The lawn and the lawn was brown, mm-hmm. and and I can remember just being there watering the lawn for a long period of time, and I went into a particular state. I lost track of time. And when I quote unquote came back, the grass was green hmm. where where I was. Mm-hmm. It was brown around it, but where I was been watering it, it turned green. And I got so excited, and I ran into told my mother about this. I ran out, just so excited. Mom, mom, the grass is green. The grass is green. The grass is green. And she was saying, "Boy, what are you talking about?" I said, "The grass is green. The grass is green." And she came out and this, <laughs> this big spot of green grass. And she said, "Yes." I said, "But it was brown. It was brown when I started." And you notice everywhere else around it is it, still brown. It just turned green. And I can remember just her kind of just looking at me kind of oddly like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like I, I really don't think this, I don't think this grass was brown a few minutes ago, mm-hmm. you know, but I, I always have that memory and certain memories like that growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember that particular one. I just went into a space and when I came back, I was aware that the grass had turned green. It was like I went into a zone of some kind. And um, so I think this this particular space that we're talking about, this zone, uh, we're out of touch with with, uh, with an attachment to an outcome where time and space is is dissolved, uh, has tremendous uh, uh, ramifications mm-hmm. in every area of life. And of course, we see it all the time with athletics, or sometimes with um, entertainers, uh, sometimes go into a zone in, in mm-hmm. a particular performance where the song sings to them. They're no longer singing the song. The song is singing them. And they're be- they become a witness to what's happening rather than a witness participant rather than uh, a doer. And everyone has the capacity for this, for this level of living. Exactly. Or as you put it, and I think this is a beautiful phrase in your book, you talk about all of us being potentially contributing architects 
of the beloved community. And I love that phrase, contributing architects, because we teach the same thing we might say here on Living Dialogues, that it's a matter of co-creation, that anything, for instance, that comes out of your consciousness or mine and that gets vocalized by either one of us, in a sense, is triggered by the bond of connection, say, that's established itself between you and source, between myself and source, between the two of us. But the third leg of the stool, I have experienced this over and over again, is the deep attentiveness and respectful and appreciative listening of the virtual community of listeners. And this is not affected by time and space. You and I are now recording this. You're in your home in Los Angeles. I'm in the recording studio in Boulder. We're not even able to see each other's images. And yet there is this intimacy of communication that we can feel as human beings in our common humanity in this conversation. And I know with a deep knowingness that when this dialogue that we're doing is heard by the audience or many audiences over time. Uh, it may be six months from now, it could be tomorrow, it could be a week from now. Their virtual presence is actually as present here in this dialogue as is your beloved community on Sundays in Los Angeles when you are in your uh, preaching mode, we might say, or in your sharing mode in the midst of your uh, Sunday congregations. And what is remarkable about this is it shows us that there is an evolutionary impulse, a deep interpenetrating cosmic consciousness and intelligence that is all penetrating in my view, in your view, in the entire universe. And it, it wants to express itself through us. And so it reminds me of uh, Meister Eckhart, the great mystic from back in the days of the Spanish Inquisition, where he said that the I with which I see God is the same mm -hmm. eye with which God sees me. And this, yeah, to absolutely. me, is what's so powerful and so contemporary in 21st century because you yourself, whoever you are, by dint of being alive, are someone whose birthright is to recognize that each of us is fully human and fully divine, just as Jesus said in his sharings with the people he spoke to uh, two centuries ago, and that uh, each one of us is as unique as a snowflake, and our mission here is to be who we fully are. And when we do that, we find that not only do we experience a great sense of joy, but we really fulfill our soul's unfoldment. And not only are you, in my experience, a great example of that in a difficult profession, which is the profession of being a minister in uh, a context which many people associate a certain kind of religiosity or veneration of uh, some kind of power outside themselves that they need to kneel before or have mediated by someone else uh, who is maybe, quote, more pious or holy like the minister. But also in our time, we are seeing this miracle happening every day with our new president, Barack Obama, who evinces, in my experience, that same kind of profound humanity and equanimity in the midst of perhaps the most toxic profession of our time of being a politician. Oh, my God, yes. You know, you touched upon a couple of things there. Uh, uh, first of all, I want to dive into what you said about the, 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 the listener. Mm -hmm. And as we're, as we're speaking right now, as you said, they're already present even though physically they may not be listening to this conversation. Exactly. And, and, 
And I'm always aware of that when I'm doing any kind of recording or when I'm speaking at uh, Agape International. I know that the CDs will be going out around the world soon. And I'm already aware Mm -hmm. that the listener is already with me, Mm -hmm. even though, uh, according to the linear time zone, Mm -hmm. they may not be aware that they're with me. But I know that what I'm participating in is a non-local event in consciousness, and I'm already speaking to them, and they're already eliciting from me what they need to hear Precisely. as they're listening. All of that's going on. Mm-hmm. And, all, and all of the people that will be listening to us, they're already, uh, they're already participating in this dialogue right now. So I'm, I'm, always, I'm always aware of that when I'm participating in, in everything, as well as the uh, non-participant observer of my soul that's watching this whole thing at the same time. So it's a very, it's a very intimate, vulnerable um, connection that's going on. And then, uh, as you said, being in this difficult, it could be a difficult situation of, of being a minister. And, and I, I use that term uh, sometimes, and most of the time I use a spiritual director. Uh, some people who come from the church community, they'll call me minister, pastor, or whatever. Uh, but I realize I'm a facilitator of energy and, uh, and encourage people to have a, a strong spiritual practice so that they, too, without mediation, can touch the realm of the divine and begin to live the life according to the pattern that is within them. And, and, it, and it, 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 is, it, it is intense. It is difficult uh, at times. Uh, but not walking alone. I mean, walking with this presence and being guided by this presence. And, and I like to say that what makes it easy for me I won't use the word easy, but I'll just say where I live, is I live in the sweet spot between being and becoming. And this came to me recently, an individual was interviewing me, and they'd flown into Los Angeles to interview a lot of the different icons in, our, in, in the United States. They'd flown in from Canada. And I'd noticed on, a, on the sheet of all the people they were interviewing, and these were very big, iconic individuals in all walks of life, and I mm-hmm. saw my name down there, and I said, well, you know, why are you interviewing little, little old me? You know, I, I didn't say it quite like that, but I said, well, where did you get my name? And he mm-hmm. said, well, we, we know who you are in Canada. You're, you're Michael Beckwith. You start the Agape movement. You're this, you're that. And he started, you know, recounting all of my uh, credentials, and he says, and you've made it. And I said, I did? <laughs> I've made it? Mm-hmm. And I, I, it, it hit me because I don't, I don't walk in the awareness of having made it. That's not where I live. Mm-hmm. And one of the first questions that he asked me is, you know, how do you remain humble after you've made it? And, I, and I, what came out of my mouth was I, I live in the radical tension between being and becoming. I, 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 I know who I am. I love who I am. I, I have a, a, an appreciation for who I am and, and what my gifts are. But I'm also aware that I'm not yet what I'm becoming. Mm-hmm. And so I live in that tension between those two spaces. Of, of appreciating who I am and the gifts that have articulated themselves thus far, and I'm very open and receptive and vulnerable to what's always trying to emerge. So I've never made it, yet at the same time, I'm not uh, tense, and I, and, I, and I love who I am. And so it keeps me in a nice, sweet space of always in a, in a, in a beginner's mind, uh, consciousness of, of discovery, and releasing of more life energy and discovery and releasing more life energy. And uh, you're always there, and you never make it. And you're always there, and you never make it. It's a sweet tension uh, uh, that I like to live in. 
And so it alleviates a lot of the um, uh, tension I see some of my colleagues involved in where they feel they have to live up to some uh, mythic uh, uh, identity that people thrust upon them. And uh, for me, I just take it all very easy because I'm always becoming myself and there's always more of me to discover. And as we look at our, our young president, who is such a visionary and uh, captures the imagination in a very powerful way with his ability to not only inspire hope, but to paint a picture of, of great possibilities. You're right. It's a very toxic uh, environment and a very toxic profession. And, and he's the individual for this time in human history that is, has, has inherited the, the moment in history where he has to try to keep things together while at the same time birth the new paradigm of green and sustainable way of being on the planet. And, and it's a, it's a uh, at the same time, reminding all of us that he can't do this by himself. This is not a, he, he can't really do it at all. It's, it has to be a, a joint participation in, in this vision that he's uh, increasingly articulating as he, as he makes his stand as president. And it's a, uh, it's just a, a wonderful time to be alive to witness this occurring because we, we haven't had a visionary in the White House in years. We have you know? not. You're co completely right. And, in fact, the last time I felt moved in this way was with John Kennedy uh, when I was a 16-year-old and he was elected president. And there is that sense of something flowing through and this sense of appreciation that the person in question is not doing it, that the whole idea of making it assumes a kind of adolescent sense of self-assertion in the cosmos, rather than each one of us opening in our maturity to being a vehicle of the flow-through of the completely pervasive universal presence, the divinity that's within us all, that is who we really are, and is no different in you than it is in me. And so I take all this very directly when Barack Obama says, I would not be here except for you. He's basically saying, I am an expression of your deepest intentionality, something that I share, that we can all live in a way that's intelligent, that is inspired by and compatible with our natural environment, respectful of its sacredness and its vitality, its greenness, that we can live in that kind of mutual respect with each other. And it is, yes, we can, rather, yeah. than, rather than I will fight for you, which is that other uh, phrase that we heard from the other candidates, I will fight for you, which is really disempowering and almost infantilizing the electorate as being consumers rather than co-creators. And so I think uh, Barack Obama is not here as a redeemer or a savior or even a particular example of someone who has, quote, made it from humble circumstances. He's here deliberately and consciously in his own mind as someone called forth by the best within us, and he is doing his best to maintain his integrity and his sense of service within that situation. And that's the light, to my mind, that shines through him, that shines through you, that shines through me, that shines through our virtual audience even as we speak. And that's what we celebrate together, and it's that that I want to honor and celebrate in your work, Michael. Because if we look at the chapter 
that's chapter two in your book where you talk about evolution and what happens with people that are, quote, evolved, uh, evolved people, you call them. You say evolved people choose happiness over drama. And we have the the no-drama Obama phenomenon where even the media began to complain that he had such, as uh, David Brooks, the Republican pundit put it, such preternatural equanimity that he was quite boring to the 24-7 cable news media who preferred to have the uh, obsessive narcissism of the Clintons to cover so that they could have drama every day. And they actually said so in so many right. words. And now people have come to quietly and slowly respect and admire the deep equanimity of Barack Obama and his ability to inspire, not by talking about himself, but about talking about our common humanity as he did in his inauguration and our possibilities. And so you say uh, evolved people experience life as a celebration rather than a problem to be solved. They exhibit forgiveness. They understand that they are in gratitude for things that most people take for granted. And also one of the other things that struck me is that evolved people recognize the power and necessity and value of downtime. And and that finally reminds me of the beautiful letter that Alice Walker sent to Barack Obama on the occasion of his election, where she said, we have seen for the last number of decades so many of our presidents turn gray or even white-haired in office as the tension of the challenge is taken on and that their families become increasingly tense. And what I advise you, Mr. President, is that you should maintain your personal happiness of your beautiful family, the integrity of your family, and govern from a point of happiness and joy, because in that way you will really express not only your own deepest potential, but that of all of us as well. Absolutely. I, I love the fact that he carries his basketball around with him. Ah, yes. <laughs> and that he'll oftentimes have very important meetings uh, shooting the ball around. Uh-huh. You know, so he stays in that free-flowing zone. You know, I, I, I find I do a similar thing with board meetings and things like that. I'll create ways for us to have fun, and sometimes uh, we'll go for walks, uh, retreats, and, and the business will unfold uh, doing a hiking or going at a mud bath or something when we're free from having to say, okay, we're seriously in a meeting right now. We have to solve this problem. We will just open ourselves up and be in play. And then the answers start to emerge uh, from that state of consciousness. So what you're, what you're saying about what Alice Walker has said to him, I think is very important. And I can only pray that, he, that as he gets more and more ensconced in his position, that he remembers that, that he keeps his basketball, he keeps mm-hmm. his downtime, mm-hmm. uh, he keeps his focus on the vision, he keeps the focus on the fact that he can't do it, that he can elicit uh, and inspire those around him and the citizen, which is the most important part of the political process anyway, the citizen, uh, to rise up and, and do what is necessary. And... Uh, we'll see some great and mighty changes because, you know, as you know, nothing happens without vision anyway. And we haven't had a vision in such a long time. We've been a reactionary uh, a country just reacting to circumstances, but no one has actually put forth a vision of uh, what, could, what is possible and how to walk in that direction. I mean, you, you go back a number of years ago when Jimmy Carter was president, and uh, he, put, he had solar panels on the White House. He had an 
uh, energy cabinets, you know, alternative energy uh, cabinet, and, and he had a vision. But, of course, he was a little bit ahead of his time, and now we have Barack Obama mm-hmm. uh, uh, drilling down into uh, the sustainable green consciousness and $500 million uh, put into that particular kind of programming, uh, putting his uh, uh, money where his mouth was in terms of his uh, campaign promises along those areas, health care, uh, you know, he's taking on so much in a short period of time. And uh, I, just, I just applaud where he's taking us at this particular time, very early in his, in his tenure. And I, I just hope he maintains this ability to stay in his personal joy and happiness while he's doing it while he's doing it, which will only serve to um, create more inspiration and more energy for all of us. And one of the other things I appreciate so much is how we can make choices to act out of our creativity and forgiveness rather than reactivity and retaliation. And we think, again, in the world of politics, the heat and fierceness of the campaign, some of the extraordinarily uh, not only completely false, but very vicious things that are in the media that are said about uh, oh my God. the candidates. And Barack Obama uniquely never retorted in kind. Really, he actually kept his equanimity, and it reminded me of the great poem of Kabir, the 15th century poet who combined both Hinduism and a Muslim background in his own person and went beyond both, that same kind of unifying expression that we see in Obama and now coming out in our culture. And Kabir said, make a tent in your courtyard for your enemies because they are the soap with which we wash the clothes of our heart. Oh, yes. And uh, that's very similar to what you say in your book, Michael, about forgiveness, that we are always presented with circumstances and people that are in our environment uh, that may attack us very aggressively or even viciously. But if we see it in this clearer, larger way with trust and faith that the universe is benevolent and everything that occurs is an opportunity for us to cleanse further our sight, uh, we can see even those that profess themselves to be our enemies as opportunities to, as you put it as well, uh, cure the spiritual astigmatism in our uh, experience and thus be able to shine brighter. And everything shines brighter and leads us through the lens of this realization, I'm quoting your book, to make new choices and to take new actions, uh, close quote. So that's another, I think, extremely powerful part of what you're sharing is the power of forgiveness and to maintain a stance of non-reactivity. Yes, I, 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 there's a, a story that, that really speaks to that. Uh, I was with um, Dr. James Lawson one time, and he was a cohort of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., of which today is the memorial assassination date, uh, April 4th. And uh, James was telling me that one time him and Dr. King walked into a great assembly, of, and um, a man walked up to him and said, are, are you Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.? And Dr. King said, yes, I am. And, and the man spat on him. And Dr. King uh, took out a handkerchief, wiped off the spittle, neatly folded the handkerchief, and handed it back to the man and said, Sir, I, I think this belongs to you. 
<laughs> and it totally disarmed the man mm-hmm. because he was expecting some kind of vicious retort. Mm-hmm. And instead, uh, he responded from the eternal rather than reacting from the temporary. He could have reacted, and probably no one would have even thought it any way out of sorts if he would have pushed the man or uh, cussed at the man or, you know. But instead, he just handed the man back to Spittle and said, I think this belongs to you. And it goes to speak to exactly what you're saying, that it was a non-reactive mode. He responded uh, from compassion and love and deep patience and forgiveness, rather than reacting uh, from resentment and animosity and unforgiveness. And I think that as we mature spiritually, and as we mature in our loving, we discover that no one outside of us can keep us from loving. What they can do is determine what kind of love will flow through. Some people will elicit the love called forgiveness. Some people will elicit the love called patience or kindness or compassion or generosity or a deep and profound intimacy and vulnerability. But everyone provides a context for us to love, but the kind of love and the, 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 uh, the refraction of love will be determined by how that individual is showing up in the world. But we, when we mature, we no longer need another person uh, to make us loving, or an, uh, and another person cannot prevent us from loving. They can only assist in determining how the love is going to come forward when we're able to respond and not react, particularly when we rise to the level of loving, where we just love to love, and we no longer objectify people by saying, I, I, I love you, but we just love to love, and then people provide a context for how that love is going to come out. And it's a, it's a freeing, liberating way of being in the world. And again, a lot of times it does begin with that deep and profound sense of the willingness to forgive and to quickly forgive so that the, the angst and the animosity does not build up on our soul and provide a level of stagnation spiritual astigmatism and filters through which we become blind and no longer can see the pristine, beautiful world in which we're living, if we can but open that inner eye and see it. And that, I think, is the final theme I'd like to really bring out here in our dialogue, is that if we once again use either your personal experience or the experience of any of our listeners or mine or a public figure like Barack Obama's to illustrate this point, you say that rather than talking to the world to try to prove ourselves to an external Mm -hmm. authority, the evolved person initiates a conversation within himself or herself. Call it a dialogue between yourself with a small s and self with a capital S, close quote. And what that reminded me of, Michael, was in the Bhagavad Gita, where we have the great, quote, divine dialogue between the aspirant uh, self, the ordinary small self embodied in the great warrior Arjuna, speaking with Krishna, the emanation of the large self with a capital S, and they're in dialogue, as happens within our heart, within our consciousness, anytime we pay attention to it. And Krishna says at one point to Arjuna, Arjuna, creatures rise, creatures vanish, but I alone am real, Arjuna, looking out amused from deep within the eyes of every creature. I abandon no one, 
So keep me close, Arjuna. Never let me go, because I am you more than you yourself are. And so that beautiful poetic expression is something that we know you found in your moment of epiphany that you describe in your book and in your DVD. We know Barack Obama found it as he expresses it in his book, Dreams from My Father. And I think it's there for each one of us to find at any time. And we may have already found it. It may have slipped away. We can find it again and then amplify it. And in conclusion, I want to just note that you, in your awareness of this process, say about your own book, Spiritual Liberation, uh, that this book is not only something that conveys a message to you through me, it will also elicit from you insights into your own true nature and purpose. Close quote. And so I want to just conclude here by showing that your spiritual calling, as we might say, as the head of the Agape Spiritual Center, is really very much being in the world. And it's something that we can see in a politician like Obama. We can see it in an athlete. We can see it in a carpenter. We can see it in a lawyer. We can see it all around us and in our own lives. This interface, we might say, of spirituality and politics. It's been so long since there's been this kind of opportunity for us to talk in the way you and I have talked here, the way we talk with that kind of vulnerability and openness about unconditional love and spirituality, and yet link it to our everyday political and economic reality of needing to actually create a green energy economy, needing to create a respectful and sacred relationship to the natural world, which supplies us with our energy and things like that. Because for so long, this separation of church and state has made it embarrassing for anyone to try to talk in this way about the public realm unless they talk about it in a very strident, ideological us and right. them way. Right. right. Well, the, the religionists have basically made the conversation infantile. And so anyone who would even speak about spirituality or the presence, you have to get through all of the filters that, that whoever's speaking at that level must be very airy-fairy and not connected mm-hmm. <laughs> to something uh, substantial. <laughs> so uh, it's good to be able to have a conversation and, uh, uh, and begin for people to talk again about these these the sacred without it being pedantic in any way. And And to have it be full of joy and yet very pragmatic and relevant to everything we do. And and just to plug into that current of energy uh, where where life itself, even the, quote, serious matters of education, health care, economy, culture, uh, can be experienced as a celebration. Absolutely. As it should be. And finally, I'm going to just close with another quotation from your book and ask you to comment in conclusion where you boldly state at one point uh, in an affirmation that you invite everyone to share in. And I'll quote it. Today, love flows through me uninterruptedly, spontaneously, freely. I go with this current of love and allow it to flood away any fear, insecurity, animosity, jealousy, resentment. Love, peace, harmony, understanding, patience, these byproducts of love are today my teachers, and I am their worthy student and servant. And so it is, and so I let it be. Close quote. Fantastic. Uh, 
I, I, when we talk about these particular qualities being mm, we, we are their servant, I like to elicit uh, an idea in people's mind, and that is when they see themselves as a servant, it's two ways. It's one, you see yourself as a waiter serving these qualities everywhere you go. You, you find them in your being, and you serve them. And then you see yourself serving them the other way as you would uh, serve someone, as you would assist someone. You, you, you're serving them. You're, you're surrendering. Uh, and so I like people to see it both ways. And so when we stand in that kind of affirm, affirmatory stance, pro- proclaiming and, and declaring that this is the truth of our being, we're actually allowing ourselves to come into harmony with a real with the mandate. See, I believe not only can everyone slip into the zone, and not only can everyone um, participate in their, their own evolution, but I believe it's really a mandate from the Spirit that we are called for this purpose. And it's within us. Now, I've had my own direct experience of this time and time again, that there, it is within us, and it is seeking by means of us to become conscious of itself, and it is relentless, it has eternity, and Duncan, it's going to win, you see. Mm-hmm. It, it's a mandate. And so when we're able to stand in affirmation, to stand in prayer, to stand in service, to stand in, in any way that allows for ourselves to surrender to this, we are coming into an alignment with the mandate of all of nature. It reminds me of Jesus the Christ saying, if I, do fi- if I do not find one worthy, I will command the rocks to shout out my name. That all of nature is bespeaking uh, uh, this divine beauty and creativity and love that is everywhere. And uh, if we don't do it, nature would do it. As a matter of fact, nature's already doing it, and Jesus was saying that tongue-in-cheek, actually. But... It's a mandate that we, we ultimately just give in to. And our life is so much sweeter, it's delicious, you know, <laughs> after that. It's, even in so-called hard times, there's an awareness of the non-participant observer always there, saying in substance, all is well, it's okay. That's right. And I recall the words of Terence McKenna one time describing the indigenous shamanic understanding, saying that the shaman or the indigenous person of that mentality, of that consciousness, knows that we are all held in the warm embrace of a caring intelligence. And because of that deep knowingness, we can have a trust and a faith in just exactly what you're saying, Michael, that there is a mandate, there is a great beneficence in the world that we can Mm -hmm. now feel is being awakened. And uh, you say beautifully here in your attitude toward uh, the political leaders, those that have responsibility right now, you say, uh, I don't just meditate upon peace, love, and oneness, but I practice it in my daily life. I am in service to a spiritual idea called peace, forgiveness, compassion, and loving kindness, and therefore I bless the world's leaders that they catch a spiritual idea of peace, harmony, and wholeness, that they yield to it and realize that heaven can be experienced on earth. I see in my mind's eye a world that prepares not for war, but for celebration 
of all the blessings contained in the preciousness of human incarnation. And I felt that same great sentiment, uh, just quoted from your book, uh, said in a more secular way, we might say, but with the same profound inspiration as I stood in Washington, D.C., maybe two or 300 yards from the podium as Barack mm-hmm. Obama delivered his inauguration speech. And one of the phrases that really communicated itself to me in that very moment was that as the world becomes smaller, our common humanity is revealed to us. And the world has changed, and so too we must change with it. And that was a way of expressing that same profound insight yes. And, yes. Uh, yes. And, and invitation to a spirituality that's fully involved in our daily life in the smallest action and how we can co-create and sustain and elicit and evoke a great vision uh, in those that express it either through the media, on the podium, or in our daily communication. And for having been and being such a great intrepid warrior between being and becoming, (laughs) uh, I want to really honor you, Michael, not only for the work you've done with your great Agape Center there in Los Angeles, but for all the ways in which you've shared with so many people uh, throughout the years. And to say what a real privilege it's been to have this dialogue and such a, a real wonderful communication. Thank you so much, Duncan. It's, it's beautiful. And, and as I say sometimes, you know, the, through technology, we've created the global brain, and now it's our moment to create the global heart. And this is what these kind of dialogues do. We create the global heart, and we all beat to that vibration of eternal peace, unconditional love, sacred service, beauty, and generosity of the soul, which is our reason for being here. It's, it's, a, it's a blessing. It is a blessing. And these dialogues have always been, I think, a great blessing uh, for all of us who've had the privilege to participate in them and to experience, as you and I have put it, that great non-local co-creative energy that's coming in so many ways from so many people throughout the world at this time. And so I extend, as you do as well, Michael, a great blessing, a sense of appreciation and gratitude that all that is and that we have the great honor uh, to participate in it, each and every one of us. Well, Brother Michael, it's been a real joy to spend this time together. It's beautiful, and it's beautiful. I, I appreciate the format, and I appreciate your consciousness. Yeah, well, Michael, it's been really lots of fun. For, and so be it, and so it shall be. <laughs> I'll hey. talk to you again. I've been speaking with Michael Beckwith, author of Spiritual Liberation, Fulfilling Our Soul's Potential. Be with us again next time on Living Dialogues. And visit us on my website, livingdialogues.com. That's living, D-I-A-L-O-G-U-E-S dot com. And if you'd like to listen freely to additional archived visionary dialogues with myself and other transformational thinkers listed on my livingdialogues.com website, once you have entered your free subscription to the Living Dialogues podcast here on Personal Life Media, future Living Dialogues will automatically be downloaded to your computer on a weekly basis. Or simply browse through the list of programs here whenever you like, download them, or listen to them on your computer. Thanks again for your deep listening in evoking this program. All the very best. And stay tuned now after the music for some very interesting opportunities available to you as a listener 
to Living Dialogues. Find more great shows like this on personallifemedia.com.